I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. John A. Rich. Dr. Rich is Professor and Chair of Health Management and Policy at the Drexel University School of Public Health. He has been a leader in the field of public health, focusing on one of the nation's most ignored and underserved populations, African-American men in urban settings. In 2006, Dr. Rich was granted a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Rich has served as the medical director of the Boston Public Health Commission and founded the Young Men's Health Clinic. He is the author, once again, of Wrong Place, Wrong Time. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Rich. Thank you very much. Um, I'm pleased to be here, and thank you for coming out this evening. It is my real hope that we can make this a conversation about a group of people who, in many ways, are at the margins of our day-to-day society. And so, with you, I hope that we can explore their voices, and hopefully that I can share with you what they taught me over time. I, I come to this as a doctor. I come to this as a physician who began my work at Boston City Hospital. And I went there, like many of my colleagues, because we wanted to be in a place where people could go and get their care without a concern about whether they could pay for it or not. It was different for me. I had trained at Mass General Hospital, which was a hospital that catered in many ways to the rich and famous, like many hospitals or several hospitals here in this area. But one day at Boston City Hospital, I was walking through the stairwell and I ran into a colleague of mine, an African-American surgeon by the name of Dr. Jonathan Woodson. Now, Jonathan also had trained at Mass General and he had also come to Boston City because of his concern about wanting to make a difference. And that day in the stairwell, John said to me, um, he looked discouraged. And he said to me, you know, I took care of this kid who came in with a gunshot wound. And he almost died. We were able to patch him up in the operating room and revive him and save his life. But then riding in in my car this morning, I heard on the radio that that same kid was dead. He'd been discharged from the hospital and several weeks later he was killed. And, And John said, we have to do something. We have to talk to these young people. Now, I felt the same way, and I had begun my work in primary care. And so within the hospital, I saw primary care, general internal medicine patients. But it occurred to me also at the time that very few of those were African-American men. But they were in the hospital. They were in the surgical clinic, the dermatology clinic, the sexually transmitted disease clinic. They were in the emergency department on the surgical wards. And so I began to wonder what we could do to draw them in. And because at Boston City Hospital at that time, you could pretty much do anything as long as it didn't cost anybody any money, (laughs) I decided to start the Young Men's Health Clinic. I promptly named named myself director um, and began to solicit from within the institution young men who were being seen in other places but for whom there was no place to to do follow-up. What was most striking to me over time as I talked with these young people and gathered data about them was how much trauma they had seen in their lives. It turned out that 45% of my patients, and these were patients who were just recruited from other clinics in the hospital, 45% had suffered a violent injury in the past. 
More than half said they had witnessed a shooting or a stabbing. A quarter said they didn't feel safe. And almost half said that at some point in their lives they had been harassed by the police, the very people who are charged with protecting them. And so it became clearer to me that trauma was the problem. That while we were thinking about these young people and categorizing them as good or sick or bad, that there was an experience of trauma that had touched their lives. Now, the problem of violence is not unusual, it's not unknown to us. And you know that young black men are more likely than any other group to die of homicide. In fact, they are 19 times more likely to be victims of homicide than young white men in the same ages. Homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men between the ages of 15 and 34. But violence, homicide, as a measure of violence, is only the tip of the iceberg. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that for every homicide, there are 94 non-fatal violent injuries. And to hammer this home, in, in Philadelphia in 2006, there were a record number of, of homicides. 406 people were homicide victims in the city of Philadelphia. In that same year, there were 2,000 shootings. And there were more than 8,800 aggravated assaults that were reported to the police. So when we think about violence, we have to think far beyond what we can count in homicide. And we then begin to understand that violence is part of the normal day-to-day -day for many communities. There's another fact about violence that is less well-known, and that is that violence is a recurrent injury, as reflected by Dr. Jonathan Woodson's statement. In some studies, if you take people who have had a gunshot wound or stab wound and follow them for five years, you'll find that 45% of them have suffered another gunshot wound or stab wound. And of the total, 20% are dead. And that includes not just the people who were shot or stabbed, but the whole group. And so violence is a chronic recurrent problem. But the question then for us is why? There was, among my colleagues, and I have to admit in me as well, a kind of assumption that many of you may find deep inside yourselves, and that was this. Young black men don't get shot, they get themselves shot. There was an implicit assumption that any victim who rolled in on any given night, who's wearing what it would seem all young black men wore at that time, hooded sweatshirt, baggy jeans, Timberland boots, there was an assumption that they had somehow caused their own injuries. But was it true? What could we make of this? And it's, I began to want to know more about this phenomenon. And while I was trained to be a more quantitative researcher, I had colleagues who had taught me something about qualitative research and what it meant to gather stories and what narrative meant, which is really what we should have been taught more about in medical school, that the stories that people tell really hold the truths of their lives. So I began to do a study where I, I took a tape recorder onto the surgical wards and sat with young African-American men who had been victims of violence. And it was enlightening to me how much they had to say and how rare it had been for them to be listened to. And one of the things that almost inevitably would happen as I sat there after 
30 or 40 minutes listening, is the young man would say, I would ask, uh, why do you think this happened to you? And he would look at me and say, you know, Doc, I guess I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, it's easy to take that phrase and cynically say, well, of course you had nothing to do with it. But I began to understand that many of these young people had stories that were not stories of selling drugs on the corner, but stories of going to a party and talking to a woman who you then didn't realize that her boyfriend was there, and that that led to conflict. To have some interpreted disrespect lead to a fight and to a stabbing or a shooting. Some of these young people were robbed of their jewelry, of their coats, of their shoes, and injured in that process. Some young people had simply gone out late at night to the convenience store in their communities at one or two in the morning to get something to eat and had found themselves shot or stabbed. And, and some were mistaken for other people. These are the stories they told. So what do we make of this? Well, I'd like to talk to you about two aspects of what I've learned over time doing research and talking to these young people and then have you think about how this fits into our strategies that we undertake to, to address violence among those who are most vulnerable. The first is, again, the impact of trauma, the impact of psychological and physical trauma. And the second is the way in which young people who lack an identity turn to violence in order to establish one. So let's start first with trauma. Over the past 20 to 30 years, there has been an explosion in science and knowledge about the impact of adversity and trauma. Some of this knowledge has come from returning combat veterans who came back from war theaters. Again, for hundreds of years we've known that they come back with symptoms that are intrusive and disabling. Uh, more recently, we have learned from victims of sexual violence that these effects are pervasive and disruptive. The symptoms I'm talking about include what we think about as post-traumatic stress disorder, but include a broader range of symptoms, including depression. And so what are, what are these symptoms? Well, they include hypervigilance, this sense of jumpiness. The, the, thing that, the common anecdote is a combat veteran who's returned will hear a car backfire and will hit the ground because there's this sort of feeling of unsafety. Depression is common. Absolute avoidance of any interaction, staying in the house, not going out, not using public transportation. There are intrusive symptoms like nightmares and flashbacks, and the, the sense that you're transported back to the fearful event in, the, in, in a moment. Many young people are unable to sleep after their injuries. There's generalized anxiety. And another symptom that's less often talked about, which is emotional numbing, the complete inability to feel. Now, this was most clearly taught to me by a young man named David. David had gotten together with his cousin one day, and they had gotten in the car and gone to the projects near them to visit some girls. Someone walked up on the car and fired on the car, 
David was injured, but his cousin, who was his best friend, was killed. David was there to see the attempted resuscitation. He was there to be grilled by the police officers about who had done this. He was taken to a different hospital from his cousin and only learned the news of his cousin's death on the news. When I met David and I talked to him some six weeks after this had happened, David explained to me that he was absolutely unable to feel fear, that the sensation of fear had left him in a, in a phenomenon we, we often refer to as dissociation, the, the separation of, of feeling from its appropriate setting. And David said it this way. He said, you know, a lot of things that made me scared or made me nervous, they don't scare me anymore. They don't affect me. Like if a bunch of guys were looking at me mean, you know, I used to be nervous, but now it doesn't even affect me. I'm like, what? You know, he said, it's like they took some of the feeling I had. It's like I have a little stone in my heart now. Think about this for a young man who lives in the inner city, who relies upon his sense of fear and anxiety to keep him out of danger. David had lost that. So young people who have these symptoms often believe that they're going crazy. And part of the burden for this lies at the medical system feet. We fail to explain to young people what we know as the normal aftermath of trauma. And so young people are sent back out into the community, often with extreme symptoms of trauma. Now, you, you may or may not realize, but only about one in 10 victims of violence who comes to the emergency department gets admitted to the hospital. Nine times out of 10, these young people will be patched up and sent back out within hours of the time that they were injured. So these young people take actions to try and keep themselves safe or to treat their own symptoms. So some say they're going to move away down south to be with family. But a number of young people explain to me that they begin to smoke marijuana to satisfy and to take away their nightmares and their symptoms of, of stress and trauma. Some begin to confront their fear in an attempt to overcome it, like David, who had lost his sense of, of feeling. But some young people turn to weapons. And if you interview young people who have weapons, they will very commonly say to you, I got this for protection. So that's what happens to patients who have this status. But what happens to the providers? Doctors and nurses seeing these young people with these emotionless faces often conclude that these young people have no empathy or that they have no regard for life or that they are guilty of something that led to their own injury. And so instead of responding in a healing way, we often respond by blaming the victim. And blaming the victim makes the trauma symptoms worse. It's a vicious circle, and we're part of it. Now, I, by, by talking about this, I'm not attempting to excuse um, young people getting weapons when they don't feel safe. But we can't confuse excusing something with trying to explain it. There's an explanation. It may not make sense to us, but it makes sense to them. And it is often the case for us as medical providers that it makes sense to the person, the patient, otherwise they wouldn't do it. That's what we try and teach medical students. It must make sense in some way. So trauma is a part of what we need to understand in the lives of these young people. Now second, I would tell you that there is a small group of these young people who I encountered 
for whom violence has actually become a part of their lives, a part of who they are. And part of that relates to this notion of respect that all of us has heard, or disrespect, which is talked about so commonly. When I began talking to these young people, I began to hear them use the word sucker over and over again in the interview. Now, I grew up hearing that word, but the way that they were using it was a different context than I had heard. So I asked a number of young people, I said, well, tell me, what does it mean to be a sucker? And he said this, a sucker is a person that if someone says something to them or does something to them, they just sit there and don't retaliate. If you're living in the inner city, you wouldn't want to be a sucker because everybody will take advantage of you. It's a simple idea, and I would venture a guess that it's not unfamiliar to you sitting in the audience. Have you ever heard it expressed to you, don't let that person do that to you, or everyone will think they can do that to you, right? It is also part of a story that you see written in the autobiographies of some of the people we revere, uh, saying that they ran home um, pursued by a bully, and their mother heroically turned them back out into the, into the street and said, you fight that bully because I want to make sure that you can protect yourself. So we've romanticized that idea a little bit. And Elijah Anderson, who's written about this eloquently in The Code of the Street, really says, respect is partly about protecting you, but it's partly about providing you with an identity when, that, when other avenues to have an identity are closed off to you. I would also suggest, and others have suggested, that this kind of idea forms the basis of much U.S. foreign policy. Um, the notion of the preemptive strike sounds an awfully lot like what these young people describe, but I won't go any further there. Um, so as I encountered this as, as a provider, as a doctor, I, I was astounded by the extent to which young people were using violence to, in their words, be somebody. But I must confess, I wouldn't have known, I wouldn't have understood this had I not had a mentor myself, a teacher, an interpreter, a translator, in the form of a young man named Roy Martin. Now, I first met Roy when I volunteered for a mentoring program in Boston, and Roy was at the time in pre-release from state prison. Roy had grown up really as the leader of a gang in a housing development in Boston. He was born to parents when they were 15 years old, and Roy had spent his life guided by the notion, the, the central guiding notion of Roy's life was this, winning justifies everything. And early on, Roy said to me a phrase that has stuck in my mind. He said, your normal is not my normal. So my normal was that I was born to parents. Uh, my father was a dentist. He'd gone to Howard undergraduate and dental school. My mother was a teacher. My father practiced dentistry in Queens, New York, in a relatively poor area not far from Shea Stadium. My parents put us in parochial school in New York, which is a private school for people with moderate income. There was a sense that they didn't want their kids in public school because it wasn't safe. And so my parents spent much of my life making sure that I was safe, going to 
what we considered to be unreasonable lengths to make sure that we were safe. In Roy's case, it was different. Roy was raised and taught how to fight. He was taught to fight. He was taught that it was his purpose to fight and that the greatest punishment that could be visited upon him would be if his brother were in a fight and he didn't jump in and cause damage. Roy was actually, Roy though is one of the most brilliant young people I've met, and Roy had done well in school, but the pull of the streets had been too much, and it really came down to one summer when Roy simply ventured out into the streets and decided to hang with the older guys who were selling drugs in the community. And Roy's parents, something that still pains him today, did not look for him seemed to not want to know where he was. And so Roy began to sleep at night, as children often make their own way, in the abandoned bear cages of a zoo that existed in Roxbury called the Franklin Park Zoo. Um, He began to take refuge there. And so Roy ended up um, really in many ways a leader but someone who really made his identity by being a tough guy. And so again, I heard this phrase, your normal is not my normal. I would not have understood the stories of these young people had it not been for Roy, because Roy helped me understand that many of these young people wanted essentially the same thing that I wanted, but their opportunities were constrained. And in fact, I was sitting in my office one day, and Roy popped by on his way to the internship that he had gotten. And I was mulling over an interview transcript of a young man who was really telling me this very idea. He was saying, if you want to be somebody, you have to earn it. And the way you earn it is through violence. If you get a reputation for violence, you can be somebody, because nobody wants to be a nobody. And so I was puzzling over this a little bit, And I said to Roy, what do you make of this? What do you make of someone who uses violence to establish himself among his peers and in his community? And as Roy often did, he looked at me and said, yeah, I understand that. He said, "Uh, it's kind of like you. We're talking about a young gang-involved kid here, Roy. Like, how is this about me? He said, well, you know, you do this research, you write these papers, you want to be known among the people in your community. You're the community of researchers and scholars. You know, I'm sure you're not that kind to each other. He went down this road. <laughs> and Roy has a, an amazing way of not mincing his words. Uh, so suddenly it occurred to me that he was really making an analogy that I wouldn't have made without him. But Roy was clear in saying, your normal is not our normal. The normal that he grew up with was not the normal that I grew up with. Roy grew up, and many of these young people grow up, we should name it, in intense racism. And that is, many of these young people could describe an experience in their lives where they went from being boys to being what looked like men, and having people essentially withdraw or recoil from them. It is not only that young people get followed in department stores, it's that the body language of many of us around them is one that continually denies 
their humanity, I would go. I would, I would go that far to say it denies their humanity. Uh, many grow up in great danger. They're traumatized. They do not view the police as their protectors. They have little sense of safety, and many have experienced the kind of unrelenting trauma that we now know can cause chronic disease and early death. And many young people lack a way to forge an identity except through violence. Violence can be, in the absence of other opportunities, a way to be somebody. If you can't be famous, Roy would say, young people say, be infamous. Again, I'm not offering excuses. I'm offering what I hope is partly an explanation that takes us to a different place. Well, I would from there say this. And I've been told sometimes, John, you know, when you, you go down this road, it can sound pretty hopeless. But it isn't hopeless. I would, I would put that out there for you. In my experience, the, what we've often talked about as resilience in young people is that these young people have capacity that is often unmeasured and unknown. Take Roy. Roy was in jail when I met him for having shot nine people. None of those people died. Roy became part of a mentorship program. And Roy was brilliant to begin with. I'll stipulate that. But Roy found himself, within a year of his release, working as an intern in the office of U.S. Senator John Kerry partly because people advocated for him. But Roy stayed in that position, in various positions in that office, for six years. Um, tremendous untapped capacity for a kid who grew up ridiculed because of his love for reading and books. What Roy does now is to work in the health department in Boston, working with the very young people whose lives mirrored his own. Roy has had the opportunity to heal, but his healing, he would tell you, is ongoing. That every day when he wakes up, it's a struggle to think about staying on a path of good. It isn't an overnight conversion. It isn't an overnight healing. Rather, it's a process of support and mentorship. Roy works with those young people and gives them his real-world assessment of their opportunities and their possibilities but also straight talk about the decisions that they have not had the opportunity to make uh, to make their lives um, more successful than they want them to be. In Philadelphia, we've taken this up. We've decided that when young people come into the emergency room, we ought not simply treat their physical wounds and turn them back out onto the street, but rather we should absorb all of what we know about trauma to try and break the cycle of violence. In a program called Healing Hurt People, we take that moment in the emergency department as an opportunity, a window of opportunity, to connect with these young people. Directed by my colleague, Dr. Theodore Corbin, we recognize that no matter what the circumstances that led to your injury, coming that close to death 
gets your attention. It, many young people use the term wake-up call. Whether or not they needed a wake-up call, they use that moment as a wake-up call to spend more time with their families, to pay attention to their children and to pursue their careers. Many young people find a spiritual presence in the moment where they lie and watch their blood run from their bodies and wonder if the, what is before them, what they're seeing at that moment is the last thing that they'll see. Our approach has been to educate young people in that moment that in the next few days you may have some disturbing and intrusive symptoms. Don't smoke weed. Don't get a gun. If you can't sleep, call us and we'll treat you. Uh, case management and navigation, where we help young people access behavioral health treatment, uh, resources that they need. Many of these young people have interrupted their educations. They dropped out in the 10th grade. Amazingly, very few of these young people even have identification cards. And yet, in their trauma and in their stigma, they feel very intimidated in crossing the thresholds of the institutions that are supposed to help them get those things. And in many cases, they are re-traumatized in those settings, judged and dismissed. So a navigator actually takes them there, takes them to the DMV to get an, um, an identification card. We use that as a mentoring opportunity to talk to young people about the assumptions that they hold about the streets, that being a sucker is something that they should react to. But we help them to help each other in psychoeducational groups called self-groups that focus on safety, managing their emotions, dealing with loss, and having a future. We call this a trauma-informed approach to youth violence. It makes sense because of the science that we have, but it makes sense because it resonates with the lives of the young people. It's a simple solution to a moment where we as a healthcare system were failing these young people. But it's not the norm, and not surprisingly, insurance companies don't pay for this. What we, what we pay for is actually the medical treatment of the wound, but we won't, we do not as a society value this, uh, the healing of the mind of these young people. Now, we're not alone in Philadelphia with this work. Similar work goes on in Boston, in San Francisco, and here in Los Angeles, Dr. Rochelle Dicker directs a program called the Wraparound Project that attempts to do the same thing with young people, connecting them to the community and using violence as a moment of opportunity. In that moment, we can ask ourselves not What's wrong with this person? Which is typically how we phrase it. But what happened to this person? Finally, we must, I would argue, transform ourselves and our view of these young people. What happened to me in engaging young people who had been victims of violence and in spending time with Roy is I realized my view of these young people was distorted. And I had not fully examined my view of them. Now, I, I can tell you that when these young people were dismissed, I felt the sting of it as a provider because as an African-American man, I felt something in that that felt like the sting of racism. 
but I would argue we, should move, we need to move further. We have to actually actively rehumanize them in our own minds, see them not as a drain, but a resource. Um, it is not only, this is not only about how we decrease violence. It is about how we help these young lives to thrive. And our judgments of these young people not only affect us, it affects them. There is now brave work happening supported by organizations like the California Endowment that focus on the whole health of boys and men of color. They've recognized that it's not enough to focus on what we're most frightened of, the violence, but rather to see it in the context of their lives, to understand that black men have the lowest life expectancy at birth, and that that life expectancy, while it's improved over the past 40 years, still lags years behind that of their, our counterparts. And that is to see violence and trauma as a part of what we must address if we are to improve the health of communities. All of this, when we move from a perspective where we see these young people as either bad, in which case the prescription is punishment, or we see them as sick, in which case the prescription is treatment, we would argue for, suggest a third alternative, which is to see them as injured. Now, injury is familiar to us. If any of us were to trip on a pothole and twist our ankle and break an ankle, we would expect that we would have to heal. Um, but some of the responsibility for that healing would rest with us. The rehabilitation, the adherence to medical treatment. But some of the responsibility would also rest with the community to understand why the injury happened and to take action to prevent that injury from happening again. If we want to be safe, if we in our communities want to be safe, we have to first, I would suggest, make sure these young people are safe, see them as injured, and see them as healing and healable. And so it is in their entirety, the stories of these young people, my interaction with them has given me hope that there is a right place for these young people. The right place is the community, and by that I mean not just the neighborhoods where these young people live and grow, but this larger community that we consider ourselves to be a part of, and if we can move in the direction, would also see these young people as a part of. I believe that the time is now, that the right time is now, if we are to form real solutions to the problem of violence, we must first hear the voices of the young people that are speaking to us and are eager to speak to us. We must listen, and most of all, we must involve them as our partners in the solution. It, it can be done. It is a transformation, again, not only of them, but it is a transformation of us. I thank you, I welcome your comments, your thoughts, your stories as well. Thank you. Issa K. Mexen. You know, Zocalo indicated at the beginning that it could go to Berlin, Guadalajara, San Francisco, etc. 
The impact of this discussion taking place in one of the housing projects in the Watts area, I think would have been profound at, a, at another level because here we are at MOCA, downtown, with a very, the question is the isolation from that community forever, even with Zocalo, how can that be changed? Well, I, I agree that these conversations need to happen in the communities where violence is happening, in part because it will educate people in communities, it will destigmatize the problem of trauma. But I think it's good that these conversations happen here. Because if the conversations only happen in the places where these young people live, then those of us who have to be involved in the solution in other ways will never hear it. The truth is, you can sit, most everything I've told you, you could hear from a young person in Watts if we were tuned to hear it. So I, I, I don't think it's an either or. I think these discussions can and should happen in a different setting. The truth is many of us, most of us, and this may be different for this room, but most of us don't know very many young black men, have not had a long conversation. I, I would venture that guess because it's just the nature of the isolation and the separation in our communities. It's a small step to have dialogue and to hear what young people have to say and to understand it not, again, as an excuse for their so-called antisocial behaviors, but an explanation for the way that they see themselves in the world. Uh, my name is Don Norwood. I'm with the uh, Time Foundation Boise Men Enrichment Program. Uh, we work with at-risk youth. Myself uh, and Sean Rector were both originally actors uh, who came out here to Los Angeles, but both of us grew up without our fathers, me, uh, he in Harlem and myself in uh, Westside Projects in Indianapolis. At any rate, um, we were inspired to get involved in the young men's lives uh, as we started teaching. We created the Time Foundation, which stands for Teaching Young Men Excellence. Um, and listening to you tonight, I gather that most of what you are saying, it, it mostly educates adults uh, as the kids know what they're going through. That's our relation with the young men that we reach out to, is that we have similar backgrounds. We too have been afflicted uh, with this trauma. I guess my question to you is how do we help galvanize the adults to be participants and to be more proactive in being part of the solution for many of these hurt young people? I appreciate the question and uh, you, you raise um, an important issue that we didn't talk much about which is the absence of fathers in the lives of many of the young people that I spoke with. We know from research that the, one of the things that buffers children against the effects of early adversity and trauma is the presence of caring adults. And so caring adults, in whatever form they take, can be a protection against the effects of trauma. Roy had a father, has a father, his father schooled him in basically how to become a criminal. And so um, the presence of a father, of a supportive other in a long-term relationship, not hit-and-run mentorship, which is what we often see, the sort of three or four or six months a year, but long-term engagement is important. So how do we 
how do we make this clearer to adults and how do we understand, how do we help them understand this? I think the first step is very fundamental and basic and it's part of the reason I undertook this work. We have to allow people to hear the voices of young people and to examine their own inheld assumptions about their very humanity. I think, it is so, I think it's at that level. I think our, our exposure to the media reinforces the notion that black, young black men are known. They're a known quantity. Um, the p- newspaper cannot hold all of the reports of injury and death to young black men. They, they can't, it's not news any longer. But all of us participate in that. We participate in the numbing trauma of recurrent violence. And so I'm not offering that as blame that, we, um, that people don't understand these voices. I think it's just one of those. We know in medicine, for example, that providers hold implicit biases we don't even know we hold. So the first is to make these voices apparent to these young people, to these young people's voices apparent to the larger community. But it's also incumbent upon us to help young people understand the context of their lives, not as bad, but to also understand the trauma that they have experienced. It requires that we shift our frame and begin to think about, begin to incorporate the science of trauma in in our discussions. Um, I think it's a prime, I think it sounds like a pretty fundamental step that I'm arguing for. I think it's the first step. I think the work that you're doing and others to provide solid support, mentorship, and a vision of the future to young people is tremendously critical. Hi, my name is Kabira Stokes. I am a student at the USC School of Policy, Planning, and Development. Hi, Issa. Um, I'm so interested in sort of, the, like you spoke of young ones who come in and there's a trauma and then they're released onto the street a few hours later. I wonder if you can speak at all to ones who have trauma are incarcerated and then are, at whatever point are released out then and I mean we all know they're not exactly treated for that trauma within the system so um, I suppose looking at when they come out and looking at the fact that they've been traumatized and it's been then I would imagine quite compounded by their experience inside Um, does any I don't know if you've dealt with that population or if you know of anyone who has but just any thoughts on that I, I think you're observation about the impact of trauma on those who are incarcerated is, is really important. We know from, I, I keep referring to studies that have been done, there's a powerful study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, actually done in San Diego. It basically looked at a relatively middle-class educated population and measured the impact of adversity prior to the age of 18 on, the, on their adult health. And they looked at things like parents divorced, uh, incarcerated parent, uh, physical, sexual abuse in the home. And in this population that was mostly white, mostly college educated, mostly middle class, they found that there was a direct dose-response relationship between the number of adversities you had as a child and diseases in adulthood, including obesity, diabetes, coronary artery disease, substance use, um, sexually transmitted diseases, their whole range, almost everything that we care about in public health could be predicted by your adversity in childhood. And so we know that childhood adversity and trauma 
including witnessing violence or being a victim of violence, affects your future health and your future behavior through a variety of pathways that are being teased out now. And so young people or people who find themselves incarcerated, a large proportion of those individuals have experienced trauma across their lifespan. And a trauma-informed perspective would say that by treating that trauma, uh, we might help them to understand the root of their behavior and to change that and potentially even improve their health. But from a policy perspective, what do we do when money gets lean? We pull mental health services out of prisons. Somehow, as if we are, that's a, a, a perk to being in, in prison. I'll, another example that comes from the trauma literature, there are researchers who believe that one of the ways you can heal the damaging brain effects of trauma in children is through exercise and physical activity. And they've documented this in animal models and in human models. But when times get lean, what do we take out of the schools? Physical education. There's a disconnect between what we know about trauma and our policy actions. So for incarcerated people who are there because they have uh, been adjudicated and are there to take responsibility for what they've done, if we can offer them, in the context of substance abuse treatment, in the context of, of counseling around intimate partner violence, if we can focus not only on here, do this differently, but if we can focus on what happened to you and how might you change that, I believe we could do better, at least do better in terms of how we treat. And I think that there are some who are coming to this understanding. Much of a trauma-informed perspective is really about how we do better based on what the science has told us. Uh, name is Michael D. McCarty, storyteller, and I do a lot of work with at-risk youth. Now, it sounds like Roy was very literate. Um, mm -hmm. I found a lot of the young men that I work with that they're either semi-literate or illiterate. Now, beyond the Roy's, have you found something similar? Thank you. I think you're right. I think that many young people have had um, a challenging time in school, have um, had low expectations guide their way through school, and many of the young people that we now encounter have literacy problems. Um, when they appear in the emergency department with an injury, we attend to those issues that are related to their injury. But it is also true that an injury is a sentinel of something. It is often a sentinel of a troubled past in school. So we know from research that one of the predictors of violence, involvement in violence, is school failure. So by turning these young people at the time that we, we hold them, and I would say the whole victim-perpetrator thing from a medical perspective, when they roll in, they're victims to us. The calculus where they're victim perpetrators is somewhat meaningless in that setting. They're, they're victims of violence. Um, but whatever has brought them to us is often an indication that they have missing pieces of their education. We believe that by intervening at that point, um, not only with adults now, but also intervening with children who find themselves in a lot of school fights, that we can re-engage them with their education. I would also say that we do know from the work that I referred to earlier, that early childhood adversity changes how the brain develops. 
and it can shift the brain's development away from the kind of higher executive functions towards survival functions. And many of you know this, that if you use imaging on brains of children who have been very, very, um, very much neglected, you'll see different pathways. You'll, they don't look like normal brains, at least at that point. We believe that can be healed. So back to education. Within the context of education, some of the learning difficulties we may see in young people may have a relationship to their adversity and trauma. And therefore, one of the solutions is to protect children from adversity. Keeping children safe is perhaps the highest order of our work. And I mean safe from the violence they see on television, the violence they see in the streets, and the violence they experience, uh, often at the hands of the people who are charged to protect them. Now, that's a high, high order, but it's, it's not the kind of thing that you can find many people who would disagree with, right? So in terms of prevention, and in terms of enhancing the learning of young people, in the context of these places, I believe that trauma plays a role there as well. First, I want to just appreciate um, you know, the book and, the, uh, and the, the conceptual idea and the place in which you come from. Uh, my name is Akila Shirelles, and I've spent the last 20 years, I grew up in the Jordan Down Housing Projects, um, you know, participated in violence, organized a peace treaty in my community, and I uh, talk about, uh, utilize a lot of the same language that you use um, in talking with young folks in the community as well as adults. And um, I'm, I'm interested in the specific uh, treatment uh, that you guys provide at the mm -hmm. hospital. Right. Um, what, what specific type of, uh, of um, therapeutic or healing modalities do you use in order to treat um, many of these individuals? Thanks, that's, that's important. Um, and I'm interested, in your, I, I'm interested in hearing from you what kind of trauma you have heard and experienced seen from the people that you've worked with? Um, I mean, sexual, physical, psychological abuse. I mean, you know, L.A. is a war zone. I mean, 18,000 lives over the past 25 uh, years. You know, mm. uh, you know, I didn't see people shot. My own son, uh, you mm. know, college student, was murdered uh, about six mm. years ago. Um, I mean, I've seen every aspect of it. You know, myself being sexually abused, physically abused as a kid, so, you know, I am a, a healing in process. Mm -hmm. I probably can be in your book, you know, oh, <laughs> probably can <laughs> identify with most of the things that you said about um, uh, uh, Roy, uh, the young man that uh, you mentored. So I, I've seen every aspect of it. Well, one of the, you know, one of the things that we are very interested in is, is testimony. That is, testimony, testifying to your trauma can be very empowering to young people uh, because it normalizes it in the context. So I appreciate your testimony to us. There are a lot of treatments that one could apply for trauma, and the evaluations suggest that many of the treatments can work. What we have focused on came out of what the young people themselves were looking for. These young people said, I'm not sitting with a psychotherapist. I'm not sitting with a person, one person who's going to sit and look at me and wonder what happened to me. But they said, if you put us in a group with other young people who have some similar experience, we might be able to do that. And so these self-groups are a psychoeducational group that is based on four key domains. Safety, so it's an acronym, safety, 
And that's psychological safety, social safety, physical safety, and moral safety. Uh, emotions, managing emotions, whatever the emotions are, whether they're justified anger, whether they're emotions related to trauma, how do you manage those emotions? Um, L stands for dealing with loss. Not only the loss that these young people have experienced, the loss that you've talked about, but also the loss that's attendant when you make one decision to do something different. So when these young people decide that they are not going to uh, participate in the streets anymore, they lose a whole cadre of friends and relationships that, are very, that may be the only friends they have. And then finally, future is really how they see the future. It's a nonlinear framework developed by um, a colleague, Dr. Sandra Bloom. So you don't have to start with safety and end with future, but rather you can start what, at whatever is most salient to you at the moment and to the group. And as a psychoeducational group, it doesn't require that young people simply retell their trauma, but it provides a framework for thinking about how they move ahead. And so that safety is really about what you need to do to be safe and facilitated by, um, by young people as well who have been through the groups. It provides a, a safe forum to talk about trauma and to construct a future. So, it, but there are many. There's cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to work. I think we've got to adapt our approaches to the lives and the circumstances of young people. Uh, find something that is culturally acceptable. Find something that provides them with uh, something that normalizes this experience for them and allows them to move ahead. Do you ever do work um, with girls or young women? We do. The, the research that was done was done with young men in particular because of the statistics that I shared with you. In the programs, in, in all of the programs that I talked about, it is not by any means limited to males or men or boys. Uh, it turns out that certainly among young populations that, we're see, that we see in the children's hospital, where many of the injuries relate to school-related fights, girls are um, about equally represented with boys. Um, in the adult setting, where most of the gunshot wounds and stab wounds actually are in males, in the girls that are seen, and young women, there's often a relationship to partner, intimate partner violence. Although in some cities, providers and, and police are reporting increasing kind of gang fighting activity among girls. What is powerful about this trauma-informed perspective is that it has utility uh, beyond these types of violence that we talk about. Um, young women who have been victims of inter intimate partner violence, of street violence, need the same opportunity to address their issues of safety, to be able to identify a future, and to be able to deal with the emotions that come with that. And so I think, I'm glad you raised that. It is, while the problem that is often talked about in terms of males, the problem of trauma in many ways has been defined uh, it, through the experience of, of women who were survivors of sexual and intimate partner violence, and those lessons have told us that trauma is really at the center of this. <laughs>